You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today, the first of the fall season for 2022, I have a very special treat for me and you, and that is the wonderful Marian Nessel, author, activist, and Paulette Godard Professor Emerita at NYU, author of Food Politics, among many, many other seminal books, um, and uh, the person who started the Food Studies program um, that so many of my listeners have probably attended, um, if not, uh, if they don't know about it already, uh, they should now. So um, Marion has just published her first memoir. Um, I suspect you could write another one, Marion, because I know that that wasn't the whole story. Um, And that is called Slow Cooked. And you can pick that up in bookstores anywhere near you or uh, dare I say it on Amazon.com. But anyway, Marion, fantastic memoir. Uh, Did you have fun writing it? Yes and no. Um, (laughs) The way that I the way that I put it, it was my it was a pandemic project, and it was my first work of fiction. (laughs) Don't burst my bubble. (laughs) I'm usually a nonfiction writer, and what I was confronted with during the pandemic was not being able to get to facts. I couldn't get into the library. I couldn't get into my office. So this was based on memory. Mine isn't any better than anybody else's. And, um, you know, this is what I remember. And I did the best I could with it. Some of it was fun. Some of it was pretty painful to go over. I don't like to remember how awful the beginnings were. I'd much rather... I'd much rather talk about what's happening now, which is, you know, which is even with the pandemic is more fun than it was when I was growing up. Um, uh, yeah. No, well, it was it was very interesting to do it. It also was heavily, heavily, heavily edited. Yeah. Because the publisher didn't think I could write a memoir. Um, they just didn't think I would be personal enough. And so uh, but as it turned out, they didn't do much editing. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I I thought it was very personal. As I said to you before we started the show, like I felt like you were actually talking to me. I mean, it just you really it's so naturally in your voice um, that it that it is very engaging, literally from the first page right to the very last. I mean, I, I devoured the book. I truly well, did. Well, thank you. Excellent. I was I was trying to make it sound like I talk. Yeah, right. And that's that's what you're supposed to do in a memoir. Not everybody succeeds. Um, so to go back to your very beginnings, and I don't want to spend too, too much time on that, but I think that's the part of your life that most people don't know about. Because, I mean, really, it wasn't until, I don't know, uh, you started the food studies program at NYU that you started to gain the kind of notoriety that really increased after food politics came out. Um, so... Um, so I think it's sort of interesting to talk about some of your earlier aspects. And one of them, and of course, this hit home for me because I grew up in a family where we had a lot of communist sympathizers, if not dear friends. And um, <laughs> uh, in the early chapters, you talk about one of your the bigger influences on your family um, was the American Communist Party. And I don't think 
uh, contemporary America has any idea how powerful that was. I mean, people know about the McCarthy era, but there was a reason for the McCarthy era. Um, and it was especially within Jew urban Jewish circles that the Communist Party was successful. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how your exposure to those ideals um, kind of fed your own sense of social justice, because that is, uh, you know, very clear throughout your career in the memoir. Well, I, you know, you don't get to choose your parents, and mine were members of the Communist Party, although rather low-level members. They weren't leaders. They weren't. Um, they weren't the kind of people who were persecuted during the McCarthy era. Um, they were just kind of low level. And I certainly have known many other children of communists whose childhoods were miserable because their parents were being persecuted or jailed or mm -hmm. in at least one case executed. And the... Um, oh, no kidding. Yeah, well, the Rosenbergs. Yeah, of and course. The... the um, no, but mine were kind of low level. And for them, as far as I can tell, it was a social thing. These were their friends. These were their colleagues. These were their comrades. Uh, they were united by a belief in social justice, in no racial discrimination, in um, in equity and all of these kinds of values that made a lot of sense to me. Mm. At the same time, um, you know, by the time I was old enough to read newspapers or hear the news or whatever, it was clear that the Soviet Union was behaving in ways that did not seem consistent with those ideals. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and what do you think? And that, was, and that was a big problem for me because I couldn't put together what was happening in the world and what the ideals were. And when I talked to my parents about it, they made excuses. And that did not make things go well at home. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I described that I didn't have a particularly happy childhood. I had a mother who was extremely difficult to deal with and a father who wasn't there yeah. and who died and who died when I was 13. Oh, and my, my. I, know, I know plenty of people who grew up in worse situations than I did. So it's hard to complain about it. But it was my reality. And it took a long time mm -hmm. to get over that. And it really wasn't until I went to college at Berkeley that I met people from the new left whose political opinions were much more comfortable yeah, sure. with mine. And, you know, we could work on the kinds of things. It was during the early civil rights movement and the early women's movement and all of those kinds of things that I believed in and still believe in. Yeah. And it was a lot easier. Um, and I didn't have to deal with a level of fixed ideology that was hard to deal with. I don't know how else to put it. Well, I, I mean, you you make a very a number of very good points about how that fixed ideology, in fact, informed your original. Your sort of like when you first started out, the idea of even just going to college was kind of unusual for a woman, a young woman. And if you did go to college, it was basically to, you know, find a husband, not to have a, an important career. Um, you know, certainly it was like at the minute you found you found your boy, you, you dropped out or you finished and you just stayed home and had babies and were a homemaker. But Katie, that's what I did. I know that's what you did. But that's, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about, a fixed ideology of what a woman's place was. And that was what was so interesting about your, you know, you talk about the arc of 
of how hard it was um, to break free from that, um, you know, rampant sexism and those very fixed ideas about what represented uh, womanhood um, in the United States. And I, you know, I found that a very interesting part of the memoir, to be honest with you, because I don't think, you know, young women today just have no freaking concept of how tough that was. I mean, my mother was a career girl too. Uh, it was not easy. And my aunt. I mean, it was a very unusual thing for women to do in the 40s and 50s. Well, I was trying to conform. I mean, I I, I felt myself to be so <clears throat> different from everybody else. You know, in being, in dealing with my parents' politics, um, you know, trying to make something consistent out of what was going on there. It was, you know, I was already a critic early on. And <laughs> the... Um, and uh, and I was confronted with a society in which there were no expectations for women at all, other than to get married and have children. And right. I love to tell the story about my three closest friends in high school, who had as their lifetime ambition to marry a professor, a doctor, and a rabbi, respectively, <laughs> and they did. And, and they, they did. did. And they um, did. Right. Um, you know, it worked for them. them. Yeah. It right. It worked for them. It worked for them. It sure but didn't work for me. It didn't work for you because you were obviously cut out of a very different cloth. Right. And it's so lucky for you that you really came of age in the 60s and 70s when all of that cloth was being transformed. I mean, yeah, imagine although, if you had been stifled the way so many other women were, you know, the generation ahead of you I mean, or behind you. Yeah, although, I mean, the way I put it is I is just as I was confronting closed doors, they cracked open a little bit. They cracked open much wider for women later. And in one situation, I was able to take advantage of that, um, but only in one that I can think of. Yeah, and, wow. and certainly in dealing with people at the medical school where I worked and in the in, in my first teaching job and all the, those kinds of stories where, you know, the kinds of things that I came up about. Anytime I read a memoir by somebody who's my age, the stories are the same. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they have different nuances, but basically everybody was confronting the same kind of thing. If you sure. were, if you were trying to do something other than being a housewife, and I have to say, I tried being a housewife. I really did. Sure, I, was, I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> oh, now, Marion, I'm sure you were just as good at that as you are at everything else you do. No. So I'm not buying know. that. Well, I you can know. cook, which is more. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was surprised at how often you describe yourself being in tears because, of course, you know, when I met you, you didn't, that was long behind you. So, yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know, I don't, you don't seem to have to do a lot of crying nowadays. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there there was a lot of it. It's, uh, I mean, it was tears of frustration and anger, sure. and you couldn't show anger, so you had to do something, just focus it inward. But right. it was a long haul, and I call the book Slow Cook because it took me a really, really long time to get over that well, and, and to figure out what I wanted to do and how to go about doing it and all of those things. As I put it, I was in my mid-60s when I wrote Food Politics. That's right. And what's interesting about that is, is that, well, I, or, or what's in, I think inspiring about that is that you can, you know, do as many important things as you did, because you did work on a lot of important projects and you were a teacher for a long time, um, or a professor, I should say, um, 
and 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 it's sort of as society changed kind of your background and the the amount of institutional knowledge you had acquired allowed you to write food politics and allowed you to be able to have this visualization of a food studies program and what that would actually mean outside of sort of the nutrition and registered dietitian kinds of, you know, boxes that uh, I think women were often slotted into. And I, I wanted to talk for a second about, um, about the sort of, um, what you saw in nutrition science when you were coming up. Um, Cause I thought that was really remarkable, like how inconsistent it was and how these studies that were being proposed as kind of uh, the be all and end all of answers to particular nutrition questions, you know, were based on samples of say seven people, all of whom were in prison, you know, like, you know, like just and, unbelievable stuff. And two of them escaped during yeah. the study. <laughs> Leading to leading to the question, was this a well-controlled clinical trial? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the idea that this would be presented as science is just astonishing. And yet that's what you were confronted with as you were learning how to teach nutrition classes in, you know, your first, uh, you know, first iterations as a professor. I mean, remarkable, right? Yeah, I mean, I had a real advantage, although it sure didn't feel like one at the time. I didn't know anything about nutrition. My doctorate is in molecular biology. That's a long story right. in itself. And the, um, you know, if it's one thing that I came out of that graduate program knowing how to do, it was to read scientific papers yeah. and, to, and to do so very quickly um, and get a real feel for whether they made sense, whether they didn't make sense, whether they were well done or not well done. And when I hit the nutrition literature for the first time, which I did on the first day I was preparing the class I was, I had been given to teach, mm -hmm. um, I was absolutely astounded at how poor the quality of the research was. And I thought, oh, this is just going to be a wonderful way to teach undergraduate biology to um, sophomore pre-med students because anybody can read these studies and see what's wrong with them. Right. You don't have to have a doctorate in molecular biology to see what's wrong with a study that only has six subjects and two of them escape. <laughs> you, know, you can you figure that out and have a good laugh about it. And this is going to be fun. Right, this right. It's going to be great, fun, much more fun than yeah. teaching cell biology, which is what I had been doing. So I never looked back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is that there were massive funding cuts uh, at the University of California, San Francisco nutrition program where you were teaching, and that these had very big impacts. And I, I wanted to talk about sort of, because it was all under Reagan that we began, I, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that period um, to be sort of the genesis of when we stopped funding education in the way that we had uh, done so in prior decades. And yeah. I wanted you to comment on the impact that has had on education in general in sure. the States. I mean, I can just give a really personal story about it. When I went to Berkeley as an undergraduate, California state legislators sent their kids to University of California system colleges. And therefore, they wanted those colleges to be terrific because their own kids were going to them. Sure. Well, I paid, I mean, you, you hear these stories, they're incredible. I paid $32 a semester my first year at Berkeley, 
uh, as that, there was fees, there was no tuition. It was tuition free. Those were fees. Um, and I spent a total of nine hundred dollars. The, oh for, the, for everything for the entire first year, I finished college debt free. So wow. that's yeah. the big difference. Yeah. That's the big difference. Um, by 1981, Reaganism had come in, and the um, the university's budget was cut. There were huge budget cuts everywhere, and the they had to start raising tuition. It wasn't free anymore. And now Berkeley, if you're a California resident, is still cheaper than Stanford, but not by much, not by yeah. all that much. And the, um, uh, you know, and student debt has become a major political issue. It has. And the other thing that I, I want to point out is because I, when I was doing publicity for books, I worked on a wonderful book called University Inc. And it really had an impact on me because what it described is that universities, because they're not getting government funding, are now obliged to seek funding from various corporations. And the corporations are all too happy to provide that funding, provided mm, the sure. universities give the research. So it's it's created kind of, I mean, and you, you are the one who really highlighted this in your food politics blog by publishing that feature for well, I don't know how long a year year and a half I'm not even sure you're still doing it but but of like identifying studies and who paid for them oh I'm still doing it you're still doing every, it every Monday that's what I thought, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that just that in itself has had such an, I, I would imagine, have had has had an enormous impact on education writ large because professors have to be careful, I would imagine, to a certain extent of what they publish or what they suppress and whether or not, you know, they publish whatever it is that they're really working on. I don't know. I mean, I want you to talk a little bit about, well, uh, about that because it's, well, it's got to well, have had... A chilling effect, right? Yeah, well, for me, going to NYU was a door opener. Yeah. Um, I was re I was recruited as a full professor with tenure. Um, I mean, that was just an extraordinary achievement for me. I had been a fired lecturer at the <laughs> University of California, San Francisco, two years before. Then I went to work for government for two years. And when I landed at NYU, I was appointed as a full professor with tenure. I had tenure. Yeah. That you know, is huge. Job security. I, I didn't have an enormous salary, but I had a salary in an apartment that I could rent at relatively low cost from NYU. Yeah. And the I could afford to live in New York. I mean, what an opportunity. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. And, and, the, and the tenure meant that I could write and teach anything I wanted. And there was really nobody who they could complain, mm -hmm. but they couldn't do anything about it because that's what academic freedom is is about. Mm -hmm. Is you know as long as I could demonstrate that I was doing fact based uh, teaching and research, which I certainly was, I could do it. And um, you know without and nobody at NYU ever complained mm -hmm. about any of the work that I did criticizing the food industry. And um, there were occasional attempts by food companies to give money to the department. And they just weren't, you know, we didn't have to take them. You didn't have so, to take them. That's the important we thing. We didn't, have, we didn't have to take them. And so I always felt that NYU was an enormously supportive environment. Um, it was just a great experience for me from beginning to end. And I feel very loyal to the institution. Um, not everybody has that experience, but that was mine. 
Mm-hmm. And what about there. other schools, though? I don't want to. Get, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, I just, um, I just, you know, after reading that book so long ago, University Inc. about how studies are funded by various corporations, and then when they don't like the study, maybe they take the funding away or something from the department. Does that? Is that? Have you ever seen that? Is that oh, an yeah. experience that you've had? Mm-hmm. Not personally. I mean, right. I've, I've not had that experience because I never took money from the food industry, so the, right. there was nothing to take away. Right. But there certainly have been plenty of studies of food industry funding of land-grant institutions. Yeah, yeah. State institutions. NYU is private. And there are, um, and even though, you know, my heart would have been closer to teaching in a public institution, I would have liked to have had that opportunity. Uh, I ended up teaching in private schools, except for UCSF, the medical yeah. school in San Francisco, which was public. But NYU was private, and there were some really significant advantages to that. Oh, I would think so, yeah. But let's, um, look, we got to take a short break for a sponsor drop. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And we're back with Marian Nessel. Um, I wanted to talk about your experience of working with the federal government, uh, because I don't know if people realize that you spent two years working with USDA on policy and on, I guess, the food pyramid, right? Um, no. 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 What was it? Tell me exactly. No, I- I was appointed to the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion and Health uh, Promotion as the. Um, oh, it was the Surgeon General's report. I uh, beg your pardon. Yeah, yes, of course. As the project officer for the Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health, which was a big federal report that came out in 1988, and the um, and so I worked for the federal government under the Reagan administration <laughs> for for two years. Um, a very interesting experience in learning how government worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I thought I knew how government worked. I didn't know anything. <laughs> I was so ignorant when I went there. Um, and I got a very um, steep learning curve kind of activity and was fortunate enough that everything worked out. So the report came out on my watch and I got credit for what was good about it. And I didn't get blamed for what was bad about it. <laughs> oh, best possible case scenario, isn't it? I mean, right. it's just right. what you want. But one of the things that you describe is that there was quite a lot of lobbying going on uh, that affected the way that report um you know, sort of the content of that report. For example, uh, the meat and dairy industries got very uh, bent out of shape about some of the suggestions that you made about, or the report uh, made that perhaps people should dial back a little bit of that in favor of, you know, whole foods, <laughs> like, you know, grains well, actually, and vegetables. I want to talk, talk a little bit about that. Actually, it was worse than that because the it was internalized. And on my, you know, this was going to be a big federal report 
that would summarize all of the research that had been done on nutrition and health and come up with policy recommendations based on what was known at the time. Right. And I was told on the first day that I arrived in the office that it wasn't going to say eat less meat, no matter yeah, right. what. No matter what the research showed. So that was internalized. Um, and it wasn't going to say eat less meat because the meat industry would get upset. They would go to the Department of Agriculture. This report was coming out of Health and Human Services. And health and uh, the Department of Agriculture would complain. And the report would not come out. And uh, this was... You know, this was no paranoid fantasy. This was reality because I spent probably a third of my time in that office trying to manage the uh, my counterpart at the Department of Agriculture who was doing absolutely everything she could to make sure that the report didn't say anything about meat. Wow. And I imagine sugar also, I mean, you know, that played into it too, like, and how much yeah. fat? No, not so much no, on the sugar, sugar side. Sugar was quieter at the time. This was during uh -huh. the period when uh, major federal reports were coming out saying the only thing wrong with sugar is tooth decay. The Association right. of Sugar to Calories and to Chronic Disease really didn't come up until later. It was triggered by the Snackwell's phenomena, which was when Snackwell's cookies... The, yes. the, the Surgeon General's, let me back up a minute, the Surgeon General's report came out and said that dietary fat was the main priority, right. was to reduce dietary fat. And there were reasons for that. But the um, when Snackwell started making no-fat cookies that had just the same number of, that had almost the same number of calories with the calories made up by sugar, um, you know, that was food industry's response to a... Um, a report that was really aimed at meat. Everybody who was sort of in the business knows that saturated fat is a euphemism for meat. Yeah. Because it's a main source of saturated fat. And But you can't say meat, but you can say saturated fat. <laughs> you can't oh say God. soft drinks, but you can say sugar. You can't say snack foods, but you can say salt. Wow. Very interesting. So, so that was from day one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yes, the lobbyists were there. I didn't have much to do with the lobbyists when I was in Washington. Other people in the office handled the lobbyists. Right, right. Now, I mean, but you did, you clearly understood very well how uh, these industries were affecting, you know, what was coming out in your report. So was this kind of the seeds of food politics? Like, is this when you started thinking to yourself, I'm interested in this topic. I'm going to start reviewing just how much clout these industries have on um, legislation or even just things like your Surgeon General's report or the food pyramid, et cetera. I mean, all of that kind of, uh, you know, stuff that comes out of the government about what we should and shouldn't eat. No, food politics had a different trigger. Really? And that, and that was my attending a meeting of anti-smoking uh, uh, physicians and scientists uh, who showed this these unbelievable slide presentations of cigarette marketing all over the world. And then in particular, there was one on cigarette marketing to children. And I knew that cigarette companies marketed and I knew that cigarette companies marketed to children, but I had never paid any attention to it. I didn't understand how ubiquitous it was and how invisible it was because it was everywhere. It was yeah. just part of the normal landscape to have cigarette advertising. Absolutely. To be, 
And these presentations, especially the one to children, made it clear how deliberate all this was. And I walked out of that meeting thinking, we should be doing this for Coca-Cola. Right. Right. Well, and so I started paying attention. I mean, that was really, that was early 1990s. And the difference was I started paying attention. So I started taking pictures of food advertising everywhere. I saw it, particularly Coke and Pepsi, because they were so ubiquitous. They were yes. just everywhere. And you never noticed it because they were everywhere. Um, and when I had a sabbatical coming up some years later, I thought, well, I'll just take all these articles I've been writing and put them together into a book. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. And what so, a book it is. I yeah. mean, it has well, been, I mean, seminal for many people. Anybody yeah. who's interested in food, who got interested in food, read your book, was like, we all had the same, like, oh, my God, moment. Absolutely. Yeah, it was interesting that that was the reaction because I thought I was just stating the obvious. Um, you know, I thought I was just describing what I was seeing, but I put it all in one place. And it, yes. it must have had the same impact that the cigarette marketing to kids lecture had to me. Yes. Where, you know, I just never noticed this before. And holy smoke, it's really well, powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you go down a rabbit hole and you suddenly realize that there's a massive cavern underneath. This is not just a little you know, wormhole. This is like half the world, you know. Anyway, really extraordinary. Let's talk now about uh, how you got the food studies program going because, you know, we're going to run out of time before we know it. So I, wa I do want to talk about how you came to establish uh, that program at NYU and, you know, what it sort of meant for you to be able to do that. Well, I think there were two things about it. I mean, one was that there was a, for, a fortuitous set of circumstances where the department had a program taken away and we needed to create something new that would make up for the missing revenue, um, to put it bluntly. And I had been hanging around with um, a group called Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust that ran conferences at which they invited academics and food writers and chefs. I was meeting a lot of food people through that. Mm -hmm. And they were telling me that they wished that they could go to university and study about food. And I had wanted to go to university and study food when I left high school. But the only options were agriculture, and I was a city girl, I didn't get agriculture, or dietetics, and I tried dietetics for a day and I knew it wasn't gonna work. It was too much like home economics at the time. Um, so the, um, you know, I, I didn't study food. I came about it in a very circuitous way when I was given a, nutri a nutrition course to teach on my first teaching job. Um, and so when the dean asked me, how are you going to feel about having this program taken away? I said, it depends on what I get. <laughs> and, she said, and she said, what do you want? And I said, food studies. And she said, what's that? That's right. And we were off and running. Incredible. Um, so, and it really was, and I also was working with Clark Wolf, who was a food consultant in New York at the time. Yeah. And um, he had offered to help. And I, I said, how can you help? And he said, watch me. And I did. And he put together this fantastic advisory committee. And the advisory committee sort of, they were, these were all people who had big jobs in the New York City food scene. 
And they said, this is the kind of person that we want to hire. We want people to know this, 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 and this. The culture of food, the history of food, how food tastes, how to tell the difference between a delicious food and a non-delicious one, uh, you know, how to recognize ingredients. I mean, these sort of basic things with a lot of academic stuff behind it. And that's what we did. We just Fantastic. did exactly what they told us to. And everybody felt really sorry for us because taking that program away was a big financial hit. Um, and so we went from concept to state approval in under a year, which for wow. university is unbelievable. And then Marion Burroughs, who was writing for the New York Times at the time, wrote about it the week after the state had approved the program and we had people in our office that afternoon holding the clipping saying oh. I've, I've waited all my life for this program wow and they, basically we created the program that we wish we could have taken mm -hmm. absolutely yes I wish I could have taken it but since I didn't go to college at all it wasn't it wasn't really I would have had to start from way far behind so I you know managed to do my own food studies program by interviewing you on a regular basis <laughs> not a bad way I'm self-taught in nutrition I don't I have yeah. no criticism of, of self-learning I'm for it yeah, no, I mean, honestly, this, as I said to you in my note, like this is my 13th year of doing this show and I cannot believe how much information I have been privileged to acquire through conversations with people like you, like just amazing. It's been absolutely fantastic for me. I, I want you to talk for a second about, for people who aren't familiar with the food studies program at NYU, I mean, it has spawned a raft of other um, programs uh, throughout the United States and probably around the world for all I know. Um, but uh, what are some of the careers that it has generated? Because, I mean, I, I thought that was a really interesting part of it. It's like, how are people applying uh, their work from the food studies program in a career? Like, how, well, I, how can't, is I can't think of any food career where our graduates aren't. Really? You know, they're, they're in universities for sure. Yeah. They work for um, publisher publishing houses. They write books. Um, they have video careers. They um, work at food museums. They're more and more of those. Yeah. They cook. They, um, you know, they food style. They do anything that yeah. has to do with food from production. They run farms. Yeah. Um, you know, they, uh, they produce organic products. Um, we have a population of students who are interested in changing the world and using food as a means to do that. Uh, and, I, you know, it's kind of wonderful. It's fantastic. And, and what you say about, I mean, in the memoir about sort of like looking like everyone eats. And so it's a, it's a much easier way to, un, you know, uh, dissect intractable societal problems or start to understand them better, I guess I would say, I should say, um, yeah. when you look at it through the lens of food, because that's where you really see, you know, uh, the lack of equity, uh, food does, you know, all of the things that go the diet and uh, related uh, disease that comes about when people do not have access to food, uh, you know, or healthy foods, you know, all of that stuff, all of these intractable societal problems can really be understood I think most clearly through looking at how people eat. 
Yeah. You know, and it's like, why didn't anybody think of that before? <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I think so too. Um, you know, it's, it's, you, I could give lectures about capitalism and the evil effects of right. sewage capitalism, but it's much easier to talk about what's going on in food systems and hunger and, you know, problems with food chains and why everybody is overeating and where the food and what the purpose of the food industry is, which is to make money, not to do public health. And it's people get it right away. And we attract a, a population of students who really do get it and who want to use food to create a society that is more just, healthier, and more sustainable. Right. Hard to argue with that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I can't wait. I hope I'm still alive when it happens. You know, in the meantime, I'd like to take a nap. No. <laughs> so, to, okay, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty soon. So what are your favorite books? Because you have, I don't know, what have you written, 15 or 16 books now? Are you asking me to choose between my children? Well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Which ones did you have the most fun writing? Let's say, let's put it that oh, way. Oh, the cartoon book. Well, that, of course, yes. that's <laughs> and, that was, and that was great. Yeah, Eat, Drink, Vote, an Illustrated Guide to Food Politics. It's got 200 food politics cartoons in it and was a, um, a collaboration with a, a cartoon bank in Seattle and she supplied the cartoons and I wrote the text to go around the cartoons and Rodale Press did a gorgeous job. Yes, they did. Illustrating. I mean, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, so that was the child that was, you know, just the really fun one from start to finish. Um, you know, food politics was the most political. Uh, I had a wonderful time writing two books about pet food. Uh -huh. um, you know, yeah. which, which I see as part of the general pet uh, food system. And of course, people adore their pets. And that was fun to do. Um, one of them is like a thriller about uh, uh, the pet food recall of 2006, how they found out what caused that, which yeah. is it's an absolutely uh, riveting story. Um, I've got a book with my partner about calories that I think holds up extremely well. Yes, that was very good. Um, yep. And a little book of essays, a Q&A book of essays uh, called Let's Ask Marion that unfortunately came out during the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> I, that, I didn't, that didn't even cross my radar. I was surprised yeah. when I read about that in the memoir. I was like, yeah. I missed that one completely. <laughs> what about soda politics? Me, everybody missed it. Well, soda politics was, you know, I, that was a big I wrote deal. it as an advocacy manual. It's how you get people to stop drinking fewer sodas and how you get the industry to back off. Right. of promoting sugary drinks. That's a great public health success story mm. because soda consumption in the United States is way down. Is that right? Yeah. What about in other countries? I remember uh, taking pictures of Coke and Pepsi for you when I traveled to Vietnam with my daughter like seven years ago or eight years right. ago, nine years ago, right. maybe. Well, I they mean, can't sell it here. They sell it there. Yeah. I mean, it was astonishing. Like Up in the mountains of, uh, you know, northern of Vietnam on the Chinese border and there are little, you know, Coke and Pepsi refrigerators. Nobody else has a refrigerator, but there are Coke and Pepsi refrigerators with sodas in them. I was like, it just blew my mind. I mean, all of that, the way the American way of eating is penetrating well, no, even these I mean, most remote brilliant. corners that's brilliant marketing yes yeah, sure is absolutely so let's talk for a minute because i don't want to keep you too much longer um 
you know, now that you're, you know, who you are and you've done what you've done, um, what would you say the role of government is in terms of remedying uh, this system, which has kind of, you know, gone pretty much desperately out of control in the sense that uh, food industry controls not only the food, but also the legislation around food, um, you know, like funding for school meals, for example, or something like that. Um, you know, these, it's taken about 50 or 60 years, I think, to get to where we are. What's it going to take to get back to a system that is more equitable um, and less exploitative, both of the environment and of the people who are actually working, whether it's a farmer or, a, you know, uh, a picker, you know, a, a, an H, H2A visa worker, somebody like that. Like, where, where, what would your policy recommendations be? Well, I think it has to come through public demand. Mm -hmm. And that means having candidates running for office who have some integrity. Um, <laughs> I mean, government, government has a role. The government has a role. I mean, we're seeing that rates of childhood poverty in the United States are dropping because of government assistance programs. That's now proven beyond any, you know, any kind of criticism. These programs are working to reduce childhood poverty. If we want more of that, we need more government programs. But we have a government that has been captured by industry. Yeah. To a very great extent, um, corporations rule the United States. And the only way that's going to change is by putting candidates forward who are willing to um, win elections and not be corrupted in the process. Yeah. I mean, I had this astonishing conversation with Thomas K. Massey of Kentucky. I'm sure you've heard of him. Um, he's a MAGA, you know, election denier, et cetera. But uh, this is like quite a while ago maybe six years ago. And um, I said, what, what, what do you think the answer is to some of the problems we have with the food system? He says, there's nothing wrong with the food system. The food industry does a great job of running right. it. <laughs> and I right. thought to myself, you know, with guys like that, uh, who, I'm, you know, whatever money he's taking from the food, I don't know. I'm not going to say that he does or he doesn't. But the lack of education around issues that pertain to food, food distribution, food production, et cetera, um, is, I think, a huge barrier to developing any kind of coherent policy. And I, you know, what, what, what would be the answer to that? Like, how is that going to get fixed? Because honestly, well, these guys don't, it's like uh, the way uh, doctors don't care about nutrition or didn't for the longest time, right? Well, doctors can't. That's a separate issue. But, the, you know, if you've only got 15 minutes with a patient, you don't have time to talk about nutrition. But the, um, you, know, the, you know, the whole question of education, health care, basic human services, those have been deliberately cut back. In order for in order for corporate profit, I mean yeah. th that's what's happened. If we want that to change, we need a population that is willing to stand up and try to to do politics in a way that has to be done. Mm -hmm. And is it too late for that? I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. Do, things, do things have to get so bad? before people are willing to say, I'm just not going to take it anymore? I don't I know. Hope I hope not. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and so I try through my work to encourage people to be as active as possible, to advocate for what for healthier and more sustainable food systems. I think that would be very, very good thing to do. And, and to try to make gains, more equitable gains, and have a more just food system in every way possible, even if it isn't fixing the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard to know where to begin because it because of the globalization of the food supply for starters, um, and the way that you know the commodities markets. And I mean, it's just I, you know, I'm I'm an undereducated person, but looking at it to me, it's just like I don't even know which thread to tug on, you know, to start to try to unravel the mess that we have created here, largely through you know, just kind of like assuming that industry is going to do the right thing and, uh, you know, that people are going to get what they need. And, you know, in a way, you can't criticize the food industry because there's a lot of food out there and a lot of it is cheap. It's just yeah. that the quality of it, uh, you know, has diminished over time to a great degree. But, but as I'm endlessly pointing out, the food industry is not a social service agency That's and right. it is not a public health agency. And once you understand that food companies are businesses and businesses have to make a profit, that's the way our system works. Yeah. Um, and their first responsibility is to shareholders. Yeah. Once you understand that, much of what happens in the food system becomes very clear. Yes, sure. But the question is, is like, how do you then dial that back without completely changing our entire system. I mean, that's capitalism. So we yeah, have well, to you, we have to be right. looking lobbying for a post-capitalist uh, society, in other words. Or you try to make it a more just and fair capitalism as it was for the 30-year period in between 1950 and 1980. Yeah, right. So it's all Reagan and Thatcher's fault, basically, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what um, I see. I, I see they've cut no, funds. No, they're the result, not the cause. Well, okay, fair enough. But they, you know, they bought into the trickle-down theory. They, you know, they started slashing education budgets, social services, you know, all of that stuff that had been built up uh, in the New Deal and beyond. And then suddenly that all became very unpopular because, you know, then corporations had to pay more taxes. And I guess they didn't want that. So anyway... On that note, Marion, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. The book, again, people, slow cooked. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold, right, Marion? And look at Marion's blog every single day, uh, foodpolitics.com, because there's always something good to learn there. Literally every week I learn something from your blog. Thank you, Marion. Thank you for being Marion. It's been a joy. We'll talk to you soon. Take care now. Bye-bye for now. And thanks for tuning in, folks. See you next week. So long. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.